and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Kitubot, daf Lamed Zion, page 37. I'm going to start here almost at the top of the daf, a couple of lines in, where we talk about, it's it's still a Kitubot topic, we're talking about a convert, um, in this case a female convert, a giorit, who is required to wait three months after she has converted, before she would then go ahead and marry a Jew, because there's a concern, right, that she might have become pregnant prior to her conversion. And then the question, you know, they want to make sure that there's no questions over the child's paternity. In this case, also because the question of paternity would be a matter of before or after the conversion, right? So it's not just about the paternity, it's about the mother's status as a Jew. All of that is according to Rabbi Huda's position. Rabbi Yossi says, from the time that she is, um, from the time that she is converted, she can become betrothed and she can be married immediately. Meaning, the concern that Rabbi Yehuda has about, you know, whether she had had sexual relations prior to the conversion does not seem to be. Uh, it's not a, at least not a burning concern for Rabbi Yossi. Because, right, he's willing to say she doesn't have to wait those three months. The question then says, so Rav Yosef is sort of Papa Barshmuel. This is already, you know, generations, really, it's a, it's a whole separate conversation, but it's on the top of this machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi. Rav Yosef says to Rav Papa Barshmuel, are you, like, this seems to be a problem to say that the convert has a comparable halacha to a shvuya, to a, to a, somebody who had been taken captive. And the answer here is, right, gilret lo menatra nafsha, shvuya menatra nafsha. A convert would not have protected herself, you know, from having had sexual relations prior to the conversion, as compared to a captive, whom we've had all this discussion over whether we assume that a captive has lost her status of presumptive virginity. Is it a given that she's been raped? Is it a given that she would have been molested? And in this case, the Gemara says, a captive would have protected herself, meaning that she's trying to prevent any molestation to the extent possible. She doesn't want to be violated. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't think that anybody thinks that the Gilrit or the prior to prior to conversion, right, the non-Jew herself would want to be violated, meaning I think that that formulation is a little bit tricky. But I think that the question of whether a non-Jew might have engaged in sexual relations that were not necessarily even, even in the time of the Gemara, might not necessarily have been considered, you know, extreme promiscuity in any way, there's still going to be this technical question, certainly according to Rabbi Huda's concerns, over the status of the child. So now, Rami Shavuya Shavuya, now we've got Rav Papa Parshmuel, bringing one halacha against another halacha, right, in terms of the, there's a halacha about the shvuya, about the captive, to another halacha about the captive, namely, we read this earlier, right, namely, we've got here in this breita, we've got a convert and a captive and a maidservant, meaning all of these people are not not Jewish except for the convert who is just becoming Jewish, right? And then they're either redeemed or converted or freed, right? And all of that process takes place after they were older than three years and one day old. Now they have to wait three months before marrying. Now, that also, on the face of it, right, that math is not going to compute because 
let's say all of that happens that when they're older than three they let me say this more carefully if the concern is pregnancy right so then the idea that um there may have been some kind of sexual violation so that these girls were not actually virgins does not necessarily mean that they were at risk of pregnancy at the age of you know four but the gemara is you know gonna the halakha is gonna take that as as a consistency, right? They're just going to say automatically across the board, you have to wait three months before getting married, according to Rabbi Huda. And then Rabbi Yossi Matir, they erase Vilana Semiyad. So in this case, then Rabbi Yossi again, uh, I'm sorry. So then he, in general, he wants to say they could be betrothed and married immediately. So then what does it, what is he going to do? What is Rabbi Yossi going to do with this other Brita of that longer list, which includes the Giorit, to say that she needs to wait? How can he say that she can go forward and get betrothed and get married when there's an explicit breita to the contrary? And here the Gemara concludes, Ishtik, Rabbi Yosef himself, Rabbi, because remember, the conversation is, we've got two conversations, Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Yosef, and Rav Papa Bershmuel and Rabbi Yosef. So when Rav Papa Bershmuel raises this question about Rabbi Yosef in his dialogue with Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Yosef, He's quiet. He doesn't have any answer to defend Ribiosi's position of them going forward. But then later he comes back and says, Amale, me to Shmailach Baha. He says, did you, did you hear anything further about this? Which again, I think is every time we have this kind of side conversation to the actual content of the learning, I think it's always a, a wonderful window into their world, right? Of and how they were how they would process these halachic conversations how they would participate in them, for that matter. Amar so Rav Papa Bershmul says to him, Hachi Amar Rav Sheshet. So he now can quote Rav Sheshet, which presumably he couldn't have done in the initial, you know, um, run of the of the conversation. He must have either heard about what Rav Sheshet said or from Rav Sheshet himself, because I don't know, I have to, I have not done the, the chronology here to line everybody up. You know, the, the names of people in the Gemara on the daf are not always lined up. Yardin, I'm sure you you have a much more intuitive grasp of who's a who's which generation of Amora here. Um, but in any case, right, the claim about Rav Shesha is what did he say? So Rav Shesha says that Rav Yehuda, when he's talking about they have to wait, specifically about the captive, for example, then he's talking about it where there was actual testimony about the fact that, that she was that there was a, a sexual relationship, or relationship, right? That there's a sexual act between the captive and her captors. Well, if that's the case, then what is Ribiosi going to say? How could she marry immediately? Doesn't she have to wait to see whether that liaison ended up with pregnancy? So uh, this, so I would have thought that the answer would have been. That that we're going to explain Rabbiosi saying where there was no such uh, testimony that she that there had been a sexual act or there was testimony that she hadn't had such an act, but instead the Gemara goes on and talks about Rabba. Rabba explains that Rabbiosi says that a woman who would in fact be promiscuous in her behavior would also use what's here called a moch, right, which is some kind of like very absorbent. Uh, I don't know. I mean. It, I mean the, the terminology and the function of it are in the Gemara are not what we would think they would be today. But the point is that this is some kind of barrier um, barrier protection, right? Some kind of birth control 
such as it was, that it would prevent her from becoming pregnant. So then the Gemara goes on to say, So then if a convert would use this same kind of, of barrier birth control, then once she's got the intent to convert, from that moment on, meaning from the moment she's planning to convert, she's going to protect herself from pregnancy. So she doesn't have to worry about whether she might be pregnant, which will then clarify why Rebiosi says she can get betrothed and she can get married right away. And I'm going to stop here. The Gemara continues, the discussion continues about all of these different opinions, but I feel like at the very least now we've provided an explanation for each of the rationales, and I feel like, okay, now we can move on, even though obviously there's more on the DAF than I'm articulating. Yeah, I think, you know, how they go through the rationales is interesting. It's it's seeing this difference between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi and how they view this. Um, I also like the piece, there's agency for the woman here. Like, there is there is an agency. We are talking about, you know, captive women and things like that. But this whole idea about women and sort of controlling their bodies, I know this is a super modern take on this Gemara. You know, what type of birth control they would use and men sort of acknowledging that women did try to do those things, I, I found to be interesting for a book that sometimes people feel does not give women that agency or that power ever. Well, it certainly recognizes what must have been a practice. Certainly it's a practice in the time of Chazal because they know about it, right? Right, right. And, and, and acknowledging it and how it impacts the halakha itself. Uh, I'm going to move down to Ahmed Bet where there's a discussion about a pasuk um, that uh, appears, right? It says, uh, mm-hmm. So there, uh, you know, this is, in the, the Gemara wants to understand this pasuk that appears in Bamidbar, chapter 35, verse 33, that basically says that there's no kapara that can be made for the land. There's no atonement for the land for blood that shed it in it but by the blood of him that sheds it, okay? Which in the context of the previous, I'm sort of hopping in the middle of a uh, of a discussion here, um, which basically is saying that somebody who commits murder, you can't get away or you can't absolve yourself of having committed that murder just by giving money, okay? That's what you can't do. And we already saw that with another pasuk. So the question is, why do we need this pasuk in Bad Midbar? to teach us that. We have to teach it because this is similar to what was taught in a brisa. And what this brisa is going to talk about is the very interesting halacha of Egla Rufa, which I don't think so far in our Dafyomi study we have seen yet. Am I correct, Anne? I mean, I could be wrong. but So Egla Rufa is basically this halacha that appears in uh, Devarim uh, uh, chapter Chaf uh, Aleph. And it basically talks about how, let's say you find you have a, a, a dead body found uh, in between uh, two um, uh, two towns, and nobody got there or who actually uh, put it there or anything like that. And there's sort of a process of uh, that the city that the or the town that the body is closest to. Um, that it needs to, uh, that they need to go through is sort of taking responsibility for the fact that there is this dead body there. And what we learn from Egla Rufa is essentially like how serious murder is. Like really, according to the Torah, 
you know, the loss of any life is something to take very, very seriously, even to the point that if you find a body in a field and no, you can't have any way of knowing who actually did it, the town that's closest to it Sorry, the community still has to take responsible, even though we don't know who the murderer is. So again, this is, I tell you to go look in Devar and Pair Club File, Chapter 21, which has all this discussion. So the Brisa here is 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 talking about that. And so essentially what happens is the elders of the town nearest to the to this uh, corpse bring this, you know, Egla, they bring this cow and they basically they, they cut off its head and they basically have to pray that they get some type of atonement for this murder. So the Brisa says, nit arfa agala and so they ask a very interesting question, which is, let's say a town does the process of Egla Rufa, and then they find the murderer. How do we know that the murderer is not off the hook, even though they did this process of atonement by doing the ceremony of Egla Rufa? And so they quote this pasuk back in, in Bamidbar, which is the source of our original question here at the Gemara, Interestingly, it's not a pasuk that appears in the section of Egla Rufa, but what we're basically learning from this additional pasuk is that, you know, that uh, you, you, the, the atonement doesn't come from the blood of the calf. In other words, the blood of this Egla Rufa doesn't uh, take away the responsibility that the murderer actually has. And then it goes on by quoting one of the psukim from, from the Egla Rufa parak in Devarim. Right? And so it has, this is like the concluding pasuk of the Egla Rufa. So you should put away innocent blood from your, uh, from your midst. So this seems to be teaching the same halacha that the murderer would still need to be sort of executed. So the questionnaire is Lama Li. Why do I need this? Mibayile, so, so it says we need it. Why? Kill it to because now we have another brace that we learn. Right? From where do we learn that anyone who's executed by sword, right? The uh, murderer, that would be their punishment is they would be executed, that they're executed by sword and not anywhere else. How do we know this? So we quote this same pasuk, right? That you shall put away the innocent blood from your midst. So it links all killing, right? All spillers of blood to this Egla Rufa. Just like there, right? The calf is beheaded from the neck. Also murderers are going to be uh, beheaded uh, from the, from are also going to be beheaded from the neck. So the Gemara says, so if there, just like in the case of the calf of the Egla Rufa, it's beheaded with a cleaver, right, a kofet, at the nape of the neck. Right, so here too, the court would execute a murderer with a cleaver at the nape of the neck. So Rav Nachman said, the Rabbi Baravua said, right, the Pasuk says, Right? So from the pasuk of love your neighbors yourself, we have to choose for him uh, sort of a, an agreeable death, a nice death, right? Mitayafa, nice death. So we're not allowed to, uh, 
when we have a person who's who is a murderer, right, and we're executing him, even within that act, we need to be careful and we need to uphold and we can't use a cleaver. Basically, that's what it's saying. Because what the Gamari is basically doing is saying like, okay, we'll kill him by, you know, beheading, but are we going to do it the same way we do the cow? And the Gamar is like, no, nah, that's not how we're actually going to do it. So the murderer is going to be beheaded, but not with a cleaver and not basically with any way that you would behead an animal. So very, very interesting passage, a little bit of a tangent on Egla Rufa. I'm very fascinated at the way of how they bring in that even the murderer needs to be treated with respect. And I think in a way, the process of Egla Rufa and this pasuk about the murderer itself really shows like a particular type of ethos of, or an ethic of justice, I would say, uh, of caring of another person that halacha has. And it goes all the way from, you know, what do we do when we find that somebody was obviously abused, right? Was obviously murdered and we don't have anyone to take responsibility for it. And that's just not something we allow in our society. So the community needs to take responsibility for it through the process of Egla Rufa, all the way in the spectrum to how do we treat the murderer? And that by using this pasuka, even the murderer has, has to be treated in a just and kind way when they have to be beheaded. I think it's really interesting. I don't know how much thought I've ever given to the murderer of of an like of this situation. Um, I want to ponder it further. Actually, I think what you said here is really interesting. I know that's not a very good response, like in terms of my own erudition, but but I, I feel like it's it's weighted, it's loaded in in a great way. Yeah, and I, again, I think this just whole thing like teaches us something very interesting uh, about halacha in general and and how we treat people and the importance of it's really it's 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 a passage about human dignity. I think maybe I'll add this. I think it's a passage about human dignity, even in the even when we're ignorant of all of the details. Right, and even under the worst of circumstances. In other words, exactly even the worst people or the worst of circumstances. dignity to those situations well that's our DAP discussion for the day rank us reviews on all major podcasts thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page and until tomorrow go and learn 